Well, good morning. We're going to be in the book of Philippians for the next three weeks, and I'd like to begin by way of a story. How many of you have read or at least heard of a book called Hind's Feet on High Places? All right, much more than the nine, so well done you. Um, This is a little book that I read first uh, when I was in high school, and it's a modern allegory about the Christian life. So think Pilgrim's Progress, but where the main character is a girl which is probably why I liked it as a high school student. Her name is Much Afraid, and at the start of the book, she lives in a place called the Valley of Humiliation. And one day, she receives an invitation from the Good Shepherd. I hope you can imagine who that would be. He invites her to leave the Valley of Humiliation and to follow him to what he calls the High Places. It's the mountaintop region where he lives and where If she will go with him, she will be healed from a crippling deformity in her feet that makes it difficult for her to walk. It's an arduous journey with many challenges along the way, including some from her own relatives who are aptly named the Fearings. But some of the challenges also come from her own growing realization of what actually happens in the high places and how that shapes the character of those who live there. At one point on the path, they cross a stream, and Much Afraid notices that the water is actually saying something to her, but she can't understand it. So she says to the shepherd, I do wish I knew what it was that the rushing water sings. It sounds so happy and eager, as though it's repeating to itself some lovely secret message, but I can never understand it. The shepherd then opens her ears to hear and understand the music. And she hears the water say this as it rushes downstream. Come, oh come, let us away, lower, lower every day. Oh, what joy it is to race down to find the lowest place. This is the dearest law we know. It is happy to go low. Sweetest urge and sweetest will, let us go down lower still. Always answering to the call to the lowest place of all. Sweetest urge and sweetest pain, to go low and rise again. That is very puzzling, said Much Afraid. The water hurries joyfully to the lowest place, but you are calling me to the high places. What does it mean? The shepherd then says to her, the high places are the starting places for the journey down to the lowest place in the world. When you have hind feet and can go leaping on the mountains and skipping on the hills, then you will be able, he says, as I am, to run down from the heights in gladdest self-giving. For it is only up on the high places of love that anyone can receive the power to pour themselves down in utter abandonment of self-giving. This is very puzzling. It is, in fact, the mystery at the heart of our faith. God, the one who occupies the highest place of all, has made himself nothing. He has revealed that the true character of divinity is not privilege, but servanthood. It's self-emptying. This is what we heard this morning in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And this mystery is so beautiful and so otherworldly that Paul himself goes a little bit allegorical in order to explain it to us, and he breaks into song. Verses 5 through 11 of our reading today are known as the hymn of Christ, or the song of Christ, because the language in Greek is so poetic and it's so rhythmic that biblical scholars believe it was meant to be sung. 
as we listen to this Christ hymn, we are in many ways like much afraid. We lack the ears to hear and to understand these words and their meaning because they're so counterintuitive to our sensibilities. But we are called to listen and to learn and ultimately to be conformed to the radical self-giving that Jesus has shown us. And when we do that, we discover that even though Jesus' example is counterintuitive, even though this whole notion of self-emptying grates against our senses, it is in fact the key that unlocks the life we want. This is the argument that Paul makes in Philippians chapter two. When we live with the same mentality that Jesus modeled for us, when we go low for the sake of love, it becomes the path to unity, it heals our relationship to power and leadership, and it bears the fruit of our salvation. So I want to reflect on these three things in turn. First, humility as the path to unity. I'll start in verse one. This is Philippians two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul is famous for his grammatical eccentricities. And this is a great example of why. This is a collection of sentence fragments followed by a request that's kind of redundant. Be of the same mind, be of one mind. It's a little bit hard to know exactly what he means here. So the context of the letter helps a little bit. What we know about this church is that they've been living faithfully. In chapter one, Paul says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you because of your partnership with me in the gospel. But we also know that there's some division in the church because in chapter four, Paul names two women whose disagreement has had an impact on the whole community. He writes, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And elsewhere in the letter, Paul mentions other leaders in the church who are preaching Christ from what he calls envy and rivalry. So there are some shady behaviors and some shady motives that Paul wants to address in this church. He's calling them to unity, but he makes an unusual argument for how to get there. And so before he tells them the how, how to achieve unity, he reminds them of the why, why they should try his approach. So let me paraphrase his opening remarks in that light. This is verse one again. Paul says, if I have encouraged you in Christ, if my love has provided you with consolation in your suffering, if you belong to that community brought into existence by the Holy Spirit, if you know anything of the mercy and compassion shown you by God, then please honor my request. It's a little bit like when I try to convince my kids to let me pick the movie on movie night. On one occasion, uh, fairly recently, I said to them, do you know that I love you? Do you believe that I know what kind of stories you like? Then trust me, you want to see Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Some things take a little convincing and we have to build our case. So that's what Paul does here. Uh, he's doing that because he's urging the Philippian church to pursue unity through practicing humility. And he knows this is not a very gratifying route for people who are divided. They might have wanted Paul to come in and arbitrate their disagreement. They might have wanted him to say, Euodia's right, 
Syntyche is wrong. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't take sides, but he calls them both to a different mentality altogether. This is what he means when he says in verse two, be of the same mind. He's not saying think all the same things as each other, but rather he's saying have the same mindset, which he then expounds on in verses three and four. Here's the mindset that I want you to share, picking it up in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In calling a divided people to practice humility, Paul demonstrates that the heart of unity is actually not agreement, it's love. Let me say that again, the heart of unity is not agreement, it's love. This is counterintuitive because we usually think arguments need to have a winner and a loser, don't we? Someone is right and someone is wrong. At least whenever my husband and I call our marriage counselor, this is exactly what we think. And we're looking for unity by way of arbitration. But Paul calls for unity by way of deference. Not one side cowing to the other. This isn't about abuse, but mutual submission and honor. And this is usually what our counselor tries to move us toward. Not naming a winner, but by helping us to find a different mindset toward each other and even a different mindset toward our disagreement. It's very frustrating, but it works. And as I reflected on this passage, I wondered how differently we might address divisions, not only in our congregations, but in the church writ large, if we could really embrace this mindset, if we were governed by humility, not hubris. This is not to say that there aren't truths that we should contend for in the church or in our relationships, because of course there are. But what's our posture as we do so? And what's our strategy? Is it to win or is it to love? There's a difference. And Paul says it makes all the difference. And in case we find this argument for humility to be weak and ineffective, which, let's be honest, we do, Paul goes on to say, essentially, look, this isn't just my idea. This is Christ's example. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here begins the famous Christ hymn, where Paul recounts Jesus' own radical humility which he describes in verse seven as a kind of self-emptying. Now in the ESV, the translation says he made himself nothing. But in the Greek, the word is kenao, or kenosis, which means to empty or divest oneself. Now this was such a dramatic claim that God would or even could empty himself that theologians have been debating exactly what Paul meant by it since the first centuries of the church. These debates are part of how the creeds developed because they forced the early Christians to say, wait a minute, does Jesus self-emptying mean that he gave up his divinity? Which in the creeds, of course, we've answered with a resounding no. Jesus never stopped being fully God. But in his self-emptying, 
Jesus does teach us something important about God. Here's how N.T. Wright put it. The decision to become human was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. By taking the form of a servant, God reveals his character, who he really is. And here's how this challenged the Philippian church, and I think in many ways how it challenges us today in the modern West. Jesus' self-emptying stands in stark contrast to the prevailing models for power and leadership on display around him. Paul wrote his letter during the reign of Emperor Nero, who essentially promoted himself to divine status and who demanded to be worshipped as a god. And he was especially popular in Philippi, where there was a large population of retired Roman soldiers. So in Philippi, many were caught up in this Roman imperial cult of Nero that prized ambition, wealth, and status. Enter Jesus, the God who became a servant. Against a panoply of self-proclaimed heroes, in a world obsessed with grasping at prestige and power, Christ emptied himself. He went in the opposite direction of worldly power, and, Paul says, so should we. It doesn't matter what our position is or our title or our status. If God went low, we can too. In the gospel, power is expressed in a downward direction. Our leader did not grasp for privilege. He gave it away. This should reshape our imaginations for what it means to lead and exercise authority, whether we are pastors or parents or business owners or police officers. It's not a script for how exactly to embody our positions of influence, but it's a mindset that is ours in Christ. And it is counterintuitive, which is why Paul goes to such great lengths to convince us of it. Randall Wallace of Regent University did a study for how this mindset might shape leaders in real time and space and what impact it might have. He argues that the principles of self-emptying and radical subordination in Philippians 2 can actually help to create what he calls super leaders, people who don't just lead but who make leaders of others. And as an example of this, he cites Miles Horton, who was a seminary-trained educator who was moved with compassion for the people of rural Appalachia during the Great Depression. In 1932, Horton founded Highlander Folk School in Tennessee, which was devoted to training labor leaders for the growing labor movement and eventually became involved in training civil rights leaders as well. And Horton's methodology was unusual. Instead of coming in as an expert that provided solutions to the people's economic and social problems, Horton did three things. First, he practiced deep identification with people by spending hours talking with them, listening to them, establishing personal relationships and trust. Second, he practiced what Wallace calls radical subordination by requiring all outside experts and leaders to withhold their ideas and theories and instead to empower people to generate their own plans for addressing problems in their community. And thirdly, he practiced servanthood by facilitating the development of leaders who would in turn train other leaders to accelerate the change process. Now, what were the results of this methodology, you might wonder? 
Using this approach, Horton developed men and women such as Rosa Parks, Bernice Robinson, and Martin Luther King Jr., to name just a few, which is not bad for an alumni list. So how might the radical self-giving of Jesus shape your imagination for leadership, for influence, for status, for your privilege? How does his example challenge you? How might it heal you? There are probably as many answers to these questions as there are people in this room this morning because again, this isn't a script. It's a mindset. It's a posture. That means it's going to work itself out uniquely for each one of us. But here's the challenge. If this mind is ours in Christ, we do need to work it out in our lives. Our conformity to the character of our Lord is the fruit of our salvation. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what this means. The self-giving love that saves us is also the love that shapes us. The love that saves us is shaping us into his image. In other words, if you are not interested in being conformed to Christ, if you're not ready to learn how to go low as he has, then Christianity probably isn't for you. Because, friends, we're not just here to get God's stuff. We're here to follow him and be made like him. This was the same harrowing realization that Much Afraid had as she ascended the mountain, as she followed the shepherd to the high places. She began the journey in search of her own healing, to exchange her crippled legs for hind's feet. But the higher she went, she realized that her healing would change her in more ways than one. And she wasn't sure she wanted it. Maybe you relate to that. Maybe you fear the downward direction of love or its implications in your life. Maybe you fear the specifics of this call for you. Maybe you're tempted to grasp at whatever power or privilege you feel might be rightly yours because answering the call to a low place might leave you wanting. If that's you, let me just encourage you to look again at Jesus and to remember he's not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done for you. He has made himself obedient even to death for you. Robert Barron illustrates it like this. He said, on the cross, with his hands nailed in place, the one thing Jesus couldn't do was grasp. Instead, he emptied himself and gave himself to the very end for us. Here's what that means. As you follow him and are made like him, as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you might find yourself in a low place like Jesus, and it might be unacknowledged or unsatisfying or even at times unbearable. And that might just be the way of things in this life. But we know that this life is only the beginning. Jesus was obedient to death, and for that reason, he was ultimately raised and exalted. 
Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. So friends, if you want to be raised with Jesus, if you want to go high with him, then don't be afraid to go low. He has shown us that the way up is down. It reminds me of what the water sang to Much Afraid as it hurried down the mountain. Sweetest urge and sweetest pain to go low and rise again. We will never understand this until we take the risk and work it out in our lives. And it does take work. Embracing and practicing the mind of Christ is not easy. It's not intuitive. But in that work, remember, you are not alone. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. In fact, God is the one who started this work and who will finish it. Paul said so himself in the very opening lines of his letter, and this is where I'll close. If you remember nothing else from what I said this morning, remember this, Philippians 1.6. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we thank you for being the author and the finisher of our faith. Thank you for running ahead of us in a race that seems so mysterious and confusing and for sending us your spirit to walk alongside us as we follow you. And thank you for the glory that you have provided to share with us now and in the end. And I do pray for each person in this room, Lord, that you would show them what is the next step of obedience that you are calling them to and that you would give them courage to say yes to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.